1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 tells us, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Today we're going to begin two weeks on the subject of church leadership. And as far as I'm concerned, this is today's most pressing issue. Moral, godly, courageous leadership is critical to the success of any church. Over the years, church leaders have gone by different titles. Shepherd, and reverend, and priest, and parson, and padre, and cleric, and vicar, and rector, and curate, to name just a few. Sadly, though, these titles are a far cry from the titles used in the New Testament, like servant, and slave, and steward, and pastor, and fellow soldier, and worker, and laborer, and elder, and brother. In fact, there is a trend today among status-seeking, power-hungry pastors to take a more exalted title. Pastor is not lofty enough. And so they go by bishop. And usually a few years elapse and then they supersize it to archbishop. Like private, sergeant, lieutenant, they sort of create a rank, a pecking order. Pastor, then bishop, then archbishop. And this is a practice that Jesus prohibited. Jesus saw how the Jewish leaders of his day were using the same kind of ego-inflating titles. And he warned his disciples, they loved to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Christ. And you are all brethren. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Now I bring this up because in this morning's text, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul uses this term bishop. But he doesn't do so as a title meant to impress. He uses it as a word meant to define and illustrate all church leaders. The Greek word translated bishop provides us an excellent picture of the role of a church leader. It's the title episkope. Here's the combination of two Greek words, epi, which means over or on top, and scope, which means to scope out, to see. Think of the English term scope. Put, it bo- put them both together, and the term episcope means to oversee, or to see from the top. Certain men in the church are needed to see the big picture. To oversee or see from the top. Usually, the head football coach roams the sidelines. He stays close to the action. He gets feedback and and motivates the team and even argues with the refs. But his view from the trenches is limited. Too much is going on on the football field. Every play, 22 men line up, shift into motion, create various angles. They explode into multiple collisions all over the field. Successful plays exploit the proper alignment. They leverage the angles. And there's no way a coach at ground level has a broad enough perspective to see the spacing that's occurring all over the football field. 
Thus, the strategy comes from on top. You see, there's a bevy of assistant coaches in communication with the sideline. They're filling up that press box. They're the ones that are overseeing the action. They're the ones who see the big picture and make the crucial calls. The outcome of the game isn't just determined by who has the best team on the field. Sometimes it boils down to who's better up in the press box. And for the same reason, it's vital for the church to have good overseers. That's what we're going to be talking about, church leadership. To me, this is a critical component under the hood of any church. And as you know by now, in our current series, we're comparing the church to an automobile and to its various assemblies. We're popping the hood on the church. And the people in leadership are a church's steering column. Now, throughout the New Testament, three factors help to define church leadership. The first is character. We need leaders with integrity, with character. Next week, we're going to examine chapter 3, and we're going to look at this list of traits that need to be present in any leader. Second is giftedness. Chapter 3, verse 2 tells us that the elders should be able to teach. And then the third component that defines church leadership is gender. And this is the topic that we want to deal with today. Let's read again chapter 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop. In the next verse, Paul adds the phrase, a husband of one wife. That implies male. Notice, Paul has just cut the prospect pool for pastors and elders in half. Throughout the New Testament, positions of authority in the church are limited to men. In the church and in the home, God wants the men to step up and be leaders. Here's one more title that should be used for a church leader. Mr. And yet, sadly, that's not what we see happening in most churches. If you walk into an Orthodox Jewish synagogue or a Muslim mosque or even a Buddhist temple, you'll find a preponderance of men. But not so in your typical church. Statistics show that 60% of church attendees are now women. Author David Murrow writes, Of the world's great religions, only Christianity has a consistent nagging shortage of male practitioners. To make matters worse, most churches are also led by women. It's true, 95% of the senior pastors and the majority of the assistant pastors are still men. But trust me, after that, in most churches, it's a train of women that rule the roost. Churches become a girl's world. Where are the men? Actually, in all of Western society, from the workplace to the bedroom, there's confusion today among the sexes. Men desire to lead, but they don't, or perhaps don't know how. Women want to be led by a loving man, but they become so disillusioned, they feel pressure to take the reins. Last month's cover of the Newsweek magazine pictured a man holding his little boy. 
The copy reads, man up. The traditional male is an endangered species. It's time to rethink masculinity. Evidently, the world around us knows there's a problem. The article goes on to document the confusion that exists today in our culture, especially among young men. Understand this, when women run the ship, young men tend to jump overboard. Understand, young men are in the process of becoming real men. They have to prove their masculinity. And they do so by acting in ways that break away from mom. Hate to tell you this, mom, but real man and mama's boy are polar opposites in their mind. Social commentator Camille Pagula, she offers this explanation. She says, a woman simply is, but a man must become. Masculinity is risky and elusive. It's achieved by a revolt from woman and it's confirmed only by other men. This is why a Christian community led by women will not attract young men. Strong male leadership is pivotal, pivotal, I'm going to say it again. Strong male leadership is pivotal to the development of younger men. You see, the fact is, most of today's social problems, an exploding prison population, unwanted pregnancies, gang violence, the drug culture, it can be traced back to young men. The church today needs to gear itself toward reaching tomorrow's husbands and fathers. And men reach younger men. The biggest need in the church today is strong, godly male leadership. Now Paul begins 1 Timothy 2, which deals with gender, by encouraging us to pray for all men. But all men come in two varieties, if you haven't noticed. For God created humans, male and female. In Genesis, when God created the universe, he did so by separating and drawing distinctions. His very first creative act was to divide the light from the darkness. He divided the waters above the firmament from the waters below. He then separated the sea from the dry land. God then divided day from night. He then created fish and birds and beasts, but again, all with distinction. He used biological boundaries. All living things reproduce after their own kind or species. Why? Because God is very specific. He distinguishes between all that he creates. And when God's creative work reaches its apex... When he creates mankind, he once again divides. God separates us into male and female. And every time the New Testament speaks to gender, the author almost always traces the root of the discussion all the way back to Genesis and to creation. Understand, the biblical order of the sexes transcends any cultural arrangement that pops up from time to time and place to place. What the New Testament teaches us about gender is more than a social construct. It's God's creative order 
God designed maleness and femaleness. Gender and its distinctions result from creation. The biblical roles for the sexes apply to all cultures and all generations. Gender matters to God. And this means 1 Timothy 2 and its instruction applies to you and me today. You know, we surveyed this chapter a few weeks ago, but today I want us to take a closer look. Let's read verses 11 through 14. There Paul writes, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. And here's why. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now before we tackle Paul's controversial rules, let's uncover their rationale. Here he tells us the the reason a woman's role should be limited in the public assembly of the church is that Adam was formed first, then Eve. You'll remember from Genesis, the body of Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. God created Adam. God then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Eve came later. She was the result of the first surgery. God put Adam into a deep sleep, opened up his side, and then pulled out something curved. That's the way the Hebrew renders it. We're not sure if it was a rib or a piece of cartilage or an extra organ. We don't know, but whatever it was, God turned it into a woman. Someone described Eve's creation as the first splitting of an atom, and it unleashed a force into the world that has never been contained. (laughs) But here's Paul's point. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now please note, in the Bible, special prerogatives and responsibilities are always assigned to the firstborn son. This was why Rebecca's twin boys, Esau and Jacob, you remember they wrestled even in her womb. They were jockeying to be the firstborn. Apparently Esau won the initial struggle, but the wrestling match had just begun. For the title of firstborn meant a lot more than just born first. This is proven later in the story. You remember Esau, he comes in famished. His sneaky brother Jacob dangles a bowl of hearty Campbell's soup under his nose. Esau is governed by his appetites rather than his convictions. And so he trades his spiritual birthright, this title of firstborn to his brother Jacob for some warmed over chili. Jacob was born second, but he ended up the firstborn. And likewise, generation after generation of human beings were born before that first Christmas morning when the virgin conceived and brought forth her firstborn son. Mary laid him in the manger and called his name Jesus. Jesus was born first only in Mary's family, but God awarded him the firstborn status. For in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 Jesus is now called the firstborn over all creation. Our Lord Jesus is now head and authority over all the universe. 
And so it was originally with Adam. God made a choice. Adam was formed first. And God bestowed on the man the title and duties of firstborn. Eve was as loved by God as Adam. Eve was as gifted by God as Adam. But God gave the man authority over both the human family and his immediate family. What a privilege it was. But with it came an obligation. In fact, a heavy responsibility. The weightiness of the man's role appears later. When sin enters the world. Remember, it was Eve that sinned first, not Adam. Yet God held the man responsible. In fact, sin passed down to all men through Adam, not Eve. Eve bit the fruit, but Adam got the bigger bite of responsibility. You see, theologians have a name for this concept. It's called federal headship. One man takes authority over a family or a race. One man acts on behalf of all men. Later, the Bible teaches us that since all men are condemned in Adam, we all can be saved in Christ. That one man acts in proxy for the group. As David and Goliath fought it out for their respective sides to determine the battle between the Israelites and the Philistines, all men today fight for their tribe. The man is head or representative and he acts on behalf of his family. Now don't misunderstand, God holds Eve and every other sinner personally accountable for his or her sin and, and, and the need to have faith. In this sense, Eve's sin had nothing to do with Adam. In fact, we find that here in the text. Chapter 2, verse 14 really lets Adam off the hook morally. It says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Eve was clearly to blame. But since Adam was head, he shared in the responsibility. Likewise, Jesus had nothing to do morally with our sin. Our failures are not his fault. And yet as our head, our firstborn, Jesus took responsibility for our folly and our rebellion. Our Lord carried our sin to the cross and died in our place. Biblical headship means taking responsibility for what's not my fault. So, when it comes to a man becoming a husband and a father, or assuming leadership in the church, he takes on this concept of biblical headship. A man takes up grave, serious, weighty responsibilities. He agrees to cover his wife and kids. He stands in the gap for others. He doesn't grumble about problems he didn't cause. He doesn't duck issues other folks create. A husband at home and a leader at church takes responsibility for what's not his fault. Though he's not part of the problem, he tries to be part of the solution. He's willing to become accountable for the people under his care. In short, he acts like a man. And not a boy. Here's how this works in marriage. Husband, your wife bears scars and hurts from past relationships. Her wounds and the dysfunctions that they cause are not your fault. 
but they are now your responsibility. As the head of your home, you're God's healing agent. You need to be a soothing, stabilizing influence on your wife, not another voice of condemnation. Stop reminding your wife of her shame and regrets and past mistakes. Encourage her with God's forgiveness and with your grace. Honor your wife. Build her up. Cherish her until she values herself. Love her until she acts lovable. Jesus redeems his bride. He doesn't condemn her. Be like Jesus. For some of you, your wife brought a kid with an attitude into your life. This kid is not your fault. But a man, a man like Jesus, takes on responsibility. Headship is being accountable for stuff that's not my fault. A lot happens in my life that I want to blame on someone else, on my wife, or on my child, or on my dog. But real men don't bellyache about what's not their fault. A man takes on the responsibility to pay her debt, to forgive their sin, to fix that break. A man shows those under him a better life. He's like Jesus to his family. And this looks very similar to what happens in the church. Godly leaders realize that people make mistakes, that problems arise they didn't cause. A church leader doesn't cast blame. He works to solve problems. He takes on responsibility for stuff that's not his fault. Church leaders are also God's healing agents to help the hurting people that God seeks and saves. You see, Adam was created first, but with authority came responsibility. This is headship. Churches need leaders who embrace duty as well as authority. I love how Peter describes gender roles in the church and in the home. He talks about males in authority. And he also talks about females with a submissive spirit. But then he calls us all heirs together of the grace of life. We're all co-heirs in God's family. We're equal in the sense that we serve the same Lord and we're saved by the same grace and we're sealed by the same Spirit and we're recipients of the same blessings and we hold title to the same heaven and same glory. Yes, we might be different in role, but we're equal in status and giftedness and favor. Men need to lovingly lead and women should willingly follow, but no man should become proud and callous and act superior to a woman. A Christian man should never try to dominate or intimidate his wife. Never. Biblical masculinity is not some kind of arrogant machismo. It's leadership among equals. Christian men need to be head and heirs together. But just not an heir head, okay? So here is Paul's rationale. Male headship is as old as Adam and Eve. Gender roles are part of God's creative order. They are embedded in our genes. This is how God fashions the sexes. From the beginning until now, this is how he has ordered society. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was made by God to take charge, to provide for and to protect his wife. He was a loving leader, and Eve wanted Adam to lead. 
She found security and satisfaction at his side. And I believe if we were all honest this morning, the same desires still brew in the heart of every man and every woman here today. So how does Paul get from Adam was formed first, then Eve, all the way to women should be silent in the church? That just seems like a big jump. In the words of Neil Armstrong, that's one small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. Well, here's Paul's logic. If God calls men to lead, women should let them. If God calls men to lead, women should let them. It's not that God doesn't like hearing a woman's voice in church. That's not why he says be silent. It's not that some hellish force is going to be unleashed if a woman dares to teach or make a decision. It's not that women are incapable of welding and managing such authority. I don't think this is Paul's thought process at all. It was much simpler. Paul is a man. And he knows that if women don't shut up, men will never speak up. If a woman doesn't allow a man to lead, if she's jockeying and competing for power, if she never lets go of the reins and keeps wrestling leadership away from her man, she's going to end up sabotaging what she says she wants. Show me a good husband who leads his wife in godliness and steers his kids in loving paths And I'll show you a smart, sensitive woman who has learned to step back at times and in ways to help her man step up. Show me a church with strong male leadership. And I won't just show you determined men. I'll show you strong women, probably more talented than their husbands. But women wise enough to deliberately take a back seat so their husbands will feel inclined to grab the wheel and to steer. Whereas, show me a church where men are missing in action, and I'll show you a church where foolish, bossy women have competed for leadership. Understand this. Once a wife assumes a hostile position toward her husband, I mean, once she declares war on her husband, there is nothing he can do to win. Nothing. If she wants to fight him, he is destined to be miserable. If he hits her, it does not go well for him. Nothing goes well for him. It goes very bad. He sleeps on the couch. Or he goes to jail and sleeps on the cot. Or she packs her bags and leaves and he ends up with hefty alimony. Nothing goes well for him. If he caves in, he's not a real man. He feels defeated and deflated. Men learn from an early age not to fight with girls. Why? Because they can never win. If a wife wants to fight with her husband for a short time, he might try to shout and argue, but he's not as good with words or with tears as she is. He just can't compete. In a marital tug of war, 99% of the time, the wife wins by default. Here's what ultimately happens to most men. They withdraw. They just vacate. They go off and live in the garage. Or they hang out with their buddies. Or they work a lot. Or they take up golf. Or they just go fishing. 
They abandoned the headship and the leadership of their family. If his wife wants to lead, that man is going to let her. You see, some women are intimidated by strong male leadership. And, and I have empathy for these women. Perhaps they've been hurt and abused by selfish, evil men. I understand that's happened. And this has developed in them a general dislike and mistrust for all men. That's, that's tragic. Now, why these men, women then turn around and marry again, I don't know. But once the knot gets tied, so often they now need to control their husband. They need to beat him down in order to keep him in line. That's how they cope. Proverbs 14 verse 1 describes two types of women. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her own hands. Every wife this morning here should ask herself, how do my actions and my attitudes influence my husband? Do I help him man up or am I pulling him down? You know, some wives are gourmets in the kitchen. But they have failed to cook up a good husband. They've left him on the counter to get cold. He's there by himself. Or they keep him in hot water all the time. He's always boiling. He ends up burned. Ladies, make sure you marinate him in the right sauces and in the right spice so he'll be tender and delicious. Ladies, do you show your husband respect? What every man wants most from his wife is some R-E-S-P-E-C-T. That's how a man spells love. Do you try to build up your husband's confidence? Do you encourage him to reach for the stars? Or does your criticism keep him hiding in a foxhole? Ladies, why should he take initiative if it's never enough? Some men prefer to just lay low and fly under the radar than to risk their wife's ridicule and digs. Why should a husband take charge when his wife is just going to buck his efforts until she gets her way? Why step up with the kids if she's going to cut him off at the legs the first time she differs with his discipline? You see, all that Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy about men and women, that women should be in silence and submission and let the men teach and have authority, implied here is that there was such tremendous confidence in this church that their men would rule well and rule lovingly. Rather than belittling and prohibiting these women, Paul's instructions are commending these women for knowing how to manage and encourage their husbands. And this is a skill some wives in this church need to obtain. Ladies, sometimes less can be more. You can lose to win. You don't always have to compete with him to get ahead. There are times when the best way to move forward is to take a step back. There's one certainty. No matter how fired up and excited a husband gets for leadership, he'll never follow through if his wife blocks his intentions. Ladies, if you're married to a man and a Christian who loves God and loves you, It's time to learn to trust him, to loosen your grip and dare to let him lead. A couple of weeks ago, I was with a group of pastors and someone asked me if our church had female ushers. I said no, and he asked why. I think he was expecting some detailed theological explanation. 
My answer was much more basic. I told him, I said, men have always been ushers in our church. So why would I take a job from a man and give it to a lady when men need to step up and be more invested rather than less? Today, Calvary has scores of women willing and ready and able to serve. But God is calling men to lead both in their house and in the household of God. And it's way past time for Christian men to man up and put on some britches. I I doubt if the troops of the Swedish National Army have ever been known for their fierceness in battle. But I hope they don't get tested anytime soon. Recently, feminist troops have petitioned the government to make a change in the Nordic battle group's coat of arms. You see, traditionally, the Swedes have marched into battle under the banner of a lion. But these female troops had the lion neutered. Notice the before and the after. Today, the Swedes march off to war under the banner of a castrated lion. Oh, I'm sure that that symbol strikes the heart in some enemies, I can promise you. Wow. Yet I look around at some churches today, and this could be their coat of arms. In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is seen as a lion, but no neutered lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is ferocious. Jesus is the king of the jungle. He roars and nations tremble. He returns and devours his enemies. And yet today the church that marches under his banner more closely resembles a neutered lion. Today's church has been stripped of much of its manliness. Women demand greater roles while men shrink to the rear. As with the rest of society, the church is becoming more and more feminized. A century and a half ago, Charles Spurgeon commented, There has got to broad a notion somehow that if you become a Christian, you must sink your manliness and turn milksop. Somehow that notion is still afloat. Just because the New Testament calls the church the bride of Christ doesn't mean Christian men need to put on a skirt. The bride is a spiritual idiom for the church as a whole. But when Paul refers to individual men like Timothy and Titus and others, he calls them, oh man of God, or my fellow soldier. He calls them by masculine terms. The church today needs strong, godly men. Church leaders go by titles like pastor and elder, but first of all, they should be called mister. Thirty years now as a pastor has taught me that this issue is no trivial matter. I've been involved in the selection process of countless pastors and elders. And there is one factor that stands out as the most reliable indicator of a man's success in leadership. And it's this. Does he wear the pants in his own family? Whenever Calvary looks for leadership, when we look for new leaders, this is our starting point. This is what Paul tells Timothy in chapter 3, verse 5. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? This morning I have a request. Here's what I need 
if I'm going to pastor this church into the future, impact our community, and win this world for Jesus, here's what I need. I need men who will love their wives and sacrifice for their kids. I need men who will pay their bills and work hard and build a life for their families. I need men who will speak up and live a life that points to Jesus. I need men who care more about other people than they do fame and fortune. I need men who aren't afraid of shaking things up and doing things right. I need men who care enough to confront a brother who's cheating on his income tax or slapping around his wife or shacking up with his girlfriend or neglecting his kids. I need men who give time and money and expertise to build a great church and leave behind a legacy of faith for future generations. Yes, I need pastors and elders and deacons and all kinds of other leaders, but first and foremost, I need men. It starts with you, mister. Mister.